Hey, good morning, Grace Place family. Let's pray before we get into the message. Father, we love you. We thank you for your incredible word. We thank you for technology that that we can all still be together, we can worship together, and um, we can hear a good word together, uh, although nothing beats being together in person, face to face, but we're glad that we can do this today. Open our hearts and let us hear you, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in our series, it is called, Can You Hear Me Now? We're talking about the fact that God wants to speak to us and that he actually does speak to us. He speaks to us in many different ways, but the question for you and I is, is when he speaks, are we listening? Do we recognize his voice? Last week, Pastor kicked the series off by laying a foundation, and he talked specifically about three main ways that God speaks to us. Now, these three ways are not an exhaustive list, but they're just three main ways. And the three ways are the scriptures, meaning the Bible, uh, the servants, meaning the pastors and leaders, and then the spirit, which is God himself. And it's also good to note that we do see in scripture, God speaking through things like angels, visions, dreams, circumstances, and prophecies. But it's important to understand that when we sense him speaking to this, him speaking to us in this way, that when he speaks, he will never undermine his scriptures, never. So we must always go back and test what we heard because if it was God, it will always align and agree with the written word of God. Can I hear a good amen? Can you throw up some praise hands in the comments below? Well, we're gonna be talking over the next several weeks about the seven churches that we find in the book of Revelations so that we can see and hear what God has to say to them and to us. I wanna give you a little bit of context regarding these churches. Well, first of all, these were literal churches in Asia Minor. Asia Minor was located in the Roman province of Asia, which would be modern Turkey today. Uh, these letters were from Jesus, spoken to John, and John wrote them down for us to read. Well, with Pastor having COVID and being in quarantine, he actually already prepared for the first two churches that we read about. So today we're going to jump all the way to the third church. And this church is talked about in Revelations chapter two, starting at verse 12. And I think it's really key to notice towards the top of the entire dialogue of all the churches found at the beginning of Revelations two, we see Jesus saying this. He says, whoever has an ear, let them hear what the spirit is saying to the churches. You know, it's important to understand that although these letters were not written to us, they were actually also written for us. And so we can all learn something from these letters that were written to the churches. And Jesus is saying to everybody, hey, listen up. In fact, historians say that these letters were most likely circulated among all of these seven churches so they can hear and learn. So they were there for the church today, and they are here for us today. And I think that if we were all honest, and the truth was told, that these churches weren't the only people who ever struggled with the things that Jesus addresses in these letters. Things like being lukewarm or being accused of losing for their first love. Well, here we go today. We're going to take a look at Revelations, as I said, chapter 2, starting at verse 12. 
Let's read this together. It says, to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, these words are the words of him who has a sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. He continues on, nevertheless, I have found a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, in other words, if not, I will soon come to you and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will also give that person a white stone with a name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Wow. There's so much stuff in here. In fact, we could probably spend three weeks on this letter alone. But we don't have three weeks. We're going to give one week to it. So let's talk about the church in Pergamum. Well, it was located on the mountainside along a coastline. This city, as it looked out, it gazed over the beautiful Aegean Sea. Historians say that the city was a, a thriving city. It was a city full of art and philosophy, This city rivaled the great city of Alexandria, which was so important to the Roman Empire. They had a big stronghold there and did a lot of operations from that place. Alexandria boasted of having one of the greatest libraries in the ancient world. Yet historians also say that Pergamum had a rival library said to be one of the largest in the world during that time. It would be like the Library of Congress today. From a distance, historians say that you can see smoke rising from the city. Well, where was the smoke rising from? It was rising from the monumental temples in the city. The city of Pergamum was famously known for its temples and its Greek gods. In fact, one commentator said this, that Satan moved his temple from Babylon to Pergamum. That's how tough of a place Pergamum was. Pergamum was. These temples included, but aren't limited to, the famous temple of Zeus. Well, if you needed help from a powerful God, that's a lowercase g, by the way, then you would go and sacrifice and give offerings here at the temple of Zeus. Then there were a lot of other temples, and if, if, if you needed help from these gods, then you would go and sacrifice there, the goddess of Athena, Aphrodite, or Dionysus. Then there was the great temple, which was one of the largest in the city, It was a temple for the imperial Roman emperor. This was one of the first temples ever erected for the Roman emperor so that the people can worship him. And if you wanted a savior that was going to protect you and take good care of you and a government that would handle business for you, well, then you would come and worship here. And you would sacrifice to the Roman government as Savior and as Lord. Well, we can go on and on about some of the other different uh, temples and the other gods, and we don't have time for that today. But could you imagine for a moment living in a place like this? It's pretty clear to say that it was not easy to be a believer in Jesus in the city 
of Pergamum. Yet, we find that the church was established here and it was growing here in the city of temples. You know, the word Pergamum actually means high or high tower. In other words, Pergamum was a seat of power in the, re- in the region. You know, and I think it's important to understand that between the Roman authority and the thriving economy of buying and selling sacrifices for these simple gods, it was a, a suppressing force that was coming down upon the church. Why? Well, because the call to serve Jesus means to lay down your idols. And laying down idols would mean to shut down the economy of Pergamum and to strip Rome of her authority in Pergamum. And if the message of Jesus were to thrive on in the city, it would ruin everything that that city had built. Well, as we notice some things as we read through this story that Jesus said to the church, um, you've got your notes there. We're going to notice a few things. First, I notice this. I notice his acknowledgement of faithfulness. Do you see Jesus acknowledging the faithfulness of people? In Revelation 2 and 13, he says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. And can you understand why Jesus describes it this way after we talked about this city of temples? And he says this, yet in the midst of where you live, in the midst of all these temples, you remain faithful to my name. I see him acknowledging the people's faithfulness in these surroundings This is not an indictment to where the church lived. In fact, it was planted by Paul, one of Jesus' greatest disciples. This is an acknowledgement and a recognition of the church's faithfulness as they live among a place where Satan lives and has his throne. Jesus is saying here, I know where you live. I see the oppression that surrounds you. I see how you suffer in this city for my name's sake. And as we read about the details of this city, we would notice that if if you and I, if we lived there, our coworkers, our neighbors, our friends, and our family members were most likely faithful temple worshipers. Jesus saying to them, and as we look around our world and our culture and our society today, he's saying, I see your faithfulness as you live among the place that you live You know, this is a key part of the text, understanding that as Jesus is acknowledging the faithfulness of these believers, that this letter was written to redeem believers. I can only imagine that these redeemed believers were a bit worn down by the temple activity here. And I can only imagine that they possibly wondered, God, are you still with us? I mean, it seems like Satan and and his work is thriving all around us. Have you left us? And perhaps the people maybe felt like God has left them. Perhaps they felt like God has lost control of this city. After all, we see in verse 13 of, of this scripture text that Antipas was put to death for his faith. John, as uh, the apostle John actually sent Antipas to this city, and Antipas became the bishop of Pergamum. Antipas was the leading voice against temple worship in that city, and needless to say, his voice was not very famous, and it was not popular. And legend goes, the Greek Orthodox say that Antipas was roasted alive. Well, I don't know if we exactly know for sure 
But I think that it's possible because of Antipas' death that people were beginning to wonder, God, are you going to protect me when persecution, persecution comes to me? I don't know about you, but I could see how discouraging it could have been to be a believer in this city, especially to see your fellow believers and friends and loved ones who are losing their life because they were followers of Jesus. Have you ever felt like that before? Have you ever wondered, God, where are you? God, have you lost control of our city? God, have you lost control of our world? God, have you lost control of America? God, are you gonna protect us? Well, Jesus speaks a word over you as he spoke over the church in Pergamum, and he says, I see you. I see your faithfulness to my word in the midst of these cultural pressures, and he says to you, keep it up. Keep serving me. You're gonna be okay. I have not left you. You are not alone. You are not forgotten. I can imagine Jesus saying, I use all things for my glory, even hard things. Now, let's be clear. He doesn't cause them, but he sure knows how to use them. Well, the second thing that I notice in this letter is I notice his accusation of sin. In verse 14, I'm gonna, in 15, I'm gonna kind of paraphrase what this says here. But first of all, we notice that this is a father speaking to his kids, his church. So like a father having a serious talk with his kids, Jesus comes and he says, we need to talk. There's some things that are not right in our home. There's things that aren't right in this house. And I love you too much. So I'm gonna address these things for your good. He says, some of you, interesting to note that he actually says some of you, not all of you. I have something against some of you. And and again, note, these are all his faithful. But some of them, he says, you're compromising. You're compromising in the fact that you are adding things to your faith that don't belong there. Sure, you've been faithful to me in your salvation, but you have not trusted me as Lord of all and your provider. You're mixing your faith with the teaching of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. Well, what are the teachings of Balaam and and the Nicolaitans? The teachings of Balaam, let's talk about that for a minute. Second Peter 2 and 15 gives us a little look. He says that Balaam loved money and he loved it a lot. He loved the wages that he would make off of the wickedness of the people. In other words, he loved the sacrifice and the wickedness of the people because their wickedness would continue to drive them back to sacrifices. Temple life for Balaam meant a lot of money. It, was, it brought him a lot of riches. You know, we also see the religious leaders in Jesus' day abusing the very temple sacrifices themselves. So because of this, Balaam would encourage the people to continue in sacrificing to idols. And moving into this life, it would lead them into all types of sin, sexual immorality included. This church was being led by others in the church, leading people into this type of sacrificing kind of life and also leading them into uh, their worship festivals and the other things. So they were participating in cultures in ways that Jesus did not want them to. Let's talk about the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans were a sect of Gnostic believers. They were simply false teachers. And John was no stranger to the Gnostic faith or the Gnostic believers. In fact, he dealt with them 
frequently throughout his life, and, and we see him dealing with them specifically in 1 John chapter 1. The Gnostics, they actually claimed to be Christians, and their doctrine was really messy, and they actually were not Christians. They were not followers of Jesus. Here's a couple examples of their messy doctrine. They believed that God was both the force and power behind light, but also the force and power behind darkness. They believed that their human existence in the flesh was punishment from the Almighty because of the fall, although that's partially true. It's not all the way true. Because of this broken theology, they took it even further, and they taught people that because this is punishment, that there would be sin in the body, and that sin in the body could not be avoided, nor could you be delivered from it. So their hunger for lust in the body, they just ran with it. They believed that it was their torture and their punishment in the body by God himself. So because of that, they didn't take the deeds of the flesh as an offense to God. In other words, they said, sin on. It's our punishment. Let's enjoy it. Well, so many of us who know what Jesus taught and what Paul taught, this is exactly the opposite kind of teaching that Paul and Jesus discussed. Paul taught grace as freedom from sin, and the Nicolaitans taught grace as freedom to sin. There's a big difference. Let's summarize these two uh, mixed teachings and, and summarize the, the, the sin that Jesus had against them and the offense. And here's how I would summarize it. Jesus is simply saying, you're adding to the gospel. For the Pergamums, their gospel message to the world was Jesus plus idolatry equals the abundant life. For the Nicolaitans, their gospel message to the world was Jesus plus false doctrine equals the abundant life. And to the church of Pergamum, they were buying these ideas. That's why Jesus had this against them. These guys were missing, mixing the gospel of salvation and they were mixing in these other ideas into the message, and they didn't belong there. They were diluting and watering down the message of the gospel. Well, how in the world are you and I involved with this type of watering down of the gospel? We're involved with it by adding to the gospel message as we participate in our own version of idol worship. We head out, and we go to fulfill our desires in Jesus but when he seemingly doesn't fulfill them the way that we want him to, we venture out in a life of mixture. We venture out and we begin to add to the gospel. And this can be seen and reflected in our lifestyle, by our actions and our attitudes as we participate in the world. Blatant sin like lying or murdering or hate or greed, and then also the really deceptive ones, the deceptive ones uh, like power play, emotional manipulation or guilting and shaming people to get our way or to, to lie to keep false narratives going so we continue to keep our power over others. We also add to the gospel with less obvious sins of mixture. And I would call that the sin of religion. Religion can be really sneaky. It sneaks itself in the church in the most amazing ways. In fact, that was one of, the, one of the main points that was preached to throughout many of the letters that Paul wrote is because religion kept getting thrown into the church after the pure message of the gospel came. Here's what the sin of mixture looks like. Mixture, the mixture of religion, when you combine it with the work of Jesus, looks like this, a whole lot of work, a whole lot of external work. 
Does God want works out of us? Absolutely, he does. In fact, it's one of the ways that you can tell the difference between somebody who believes in Jesus and somebody who doesn't, but the works that come out of us as believers come from a place of resting in the vine. See, mixture in the form of religion says this, work. And Jesus says the exact opposite and says rest. And when we fail to realize this idea of not mixing the work and religion in with the gospel message, here's what it sounds like. It sounds like this, strive, compete, and compare. And when we're striving and we're competing and we're comparing in one another and we're striving for God's approval and competing for his approvals and competing for more of his blessings than the neighbor's, When I read my Bible, this doesn't sound anything like the new family of God that Jesus has welcomed me into. In fact, it sounds like the way the world governs itself, but that's exactly how religion loves it. That is how the enemy wants to work in and sneak in and confuse the church. Mixture also in the form of religion says, look at me, look at me. When Jesus says, look at my father, Look at my father. We've got to realize that the external works and and our behaviors and our life accomplishments, they're not ours to claim. And all the things that Jesus accomplished on this earth with his life, and they are amazing, he always gave glory to God. He never said, look at me, look at me. He pointed people directly to his father and And I've been guilty of both of these things, both of these forms and versions of mixture. Jesus saying to the people, I've got something against you. Aren't you glad that love doesn't stay silent when we're stuck in mixture and we're diluting the gospel of Jesus with other things? Jesus never leaves sin alone and he didn't for the church in Pergamum and he doesn't leave our sin alone either. Why? Because he's a good father and he knows that mixture and adding to the gospel does not lead us to the abundant life. In fact, it leads us away from it and leads us back into a life of bondage and slavery. Every narrative of the Bible, there's natural pictures and spiritual pictures. And we, as we take a look at this spiritual picture, I think it's really important for us to, to understand quickly, though, as we look at natural pictures, we can get stuck in natural pictures. And if we look at the story from just a natural mindset, we would look at the story and we would say, Jesus is looking at this church. He's coming down on them. He's condemning them. And he's saying, stop, 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 and get to good work. But when I look at this from a spiritual perspective, here's what I see Jesus saying from a spiritual vantage point. He's saying, I see a people whom I have set a table for and prepared for them. And on my table that I prepared for them are plates, dishes, full of good food, full of lamb. And I see my people leaving my table nibbling on lamb and going out and filling their plates with other food. And I see him saying, son and daughter, don't expect to be nourished by the abundant life when you treat lamb as an appetizer. More beauty, more wealth, more entertainment, more success, and more stuff 
Chasing after these gods, you will never stop sacrificing for them. They will always require more from you. There's always another thing to buy. There's always another silver bullet for beauty, for health, for wealth. There's always another leadership trick to get people to respect you or to get people to follow your vision. And don't get me wrong, I love some of these things. They're enjoyable. I, I, I love uh, reading. I love improving. I love efficiency. I love, I love influence for the gospel. I'm not saying all of these things are bad, but I am saying that when we substitute the pure lamb of God for these things, they are an idol and Jesus is saying repent. Religion has its idols too. More prayer, more Bible study, more church, more fellowship, more books, more serving, more leadership, more responsibility, more giving, more sacrificing, and it never stops. And the God of religion loves you, worn out and busy. And I say God, meaning a small G. The God of religion will always want more sacrifices from you, more burnt offerings from you. And the more you do it, the more he promises blessings for you. I'm telling you today that the God of religion says work. I've mixed Jesus with religion. And it's no fun. I want you to notice that none of these things can take the place of a plate of lamb. When you eat from his plate, he will say things like, you are enough. You are approved. You are my beloved. You don't need to chase success anymore because you have success. I am success. Your significance is in me. And I want to tell you, believer, that from this kind of love, from this kind of abiding in the vine, from this kind of of admonition from God, that you will leave that place of rest and you will serve out of rest. You will work out of rest. You will be fruitful out of rest in the kingdom. But he will never make you serve and work and produce for love. This was the message to the Pergamums and it's the message to us. Any pastor, leader, or friend that you have surrounded yourself with that serves you something other than the pure lamb of God is not serving the pure gospel to you. And anyone who is eating anything but the pure lamb of God is not eating from what Christ has provided for us. Jesus says to you and I, I see you, faithful son. I see you, faithful daughter. But I have something against you. You are adding to my message of the gospel. Next, I notice his appeal for repentance. What is Jesus saying to the church to today? He's saying, I have something against you. He was saying it to the Pergamum church. Repent. I'm coming to fight against them with my sword. It's so important to understand that repentance is not just for non-believers. Obviously, as we see in the scripture, he's calling an entire church of faithful believers to repentance. Although we hear repentance and we don't think it's for us. I remember growing up and every time I heard repentance, it was always about 
giving my life to Jesus for the first time or coming back to Jesus because I had been away. And that's not the meaning of the word repentance. Repentance simply means to be transformed. It's the Greek word metanoia, where we get our word metamorphosis. And it specifically means to change the way you think and to change the way you believe. And Jesus is coming to the church and he's saying, I want you to repent and change the way you think and believe about temple worship and false religion. I want you to change the way you believe about filling your plate with anything other than the pure lamb of God. I don't know about you, but I repent. I want, and I'm sure you do too, to make sure that my thoughts, feelings, desires, and actions are transformed to be like Christ. Who in this scripture is needing to repent? Well, we see scripture saying some of you, some of you need to repent and that some of you is the believers that were adding to the gospel. It was the Nicolaitans. It was the false teachers. It was the leaders in the church and maybe not even leaders, but maybe other people in the church that were saying, hey, meet me for lunch after church. We're gonna go sacrifice to the idol and have a little fun. I could go on there, but I'm not going to. These people needed to repent. And if they did not repent, the Lord promised to fight against them and this false teaching. I want to give us a reality check as we look at this entire scripture in context. The Lord is not coming to this church with his double-edged sword to cut his sons and daughters and to slice them up and to kill them. There's no bloodshed here. He is coming with a sword to cut away false religion, false ideas, and anything that does not belong to the pure message of Jesus Christ. He's coming with his sword to divide, to divide truth from lies. Why? Because he wants to make sure that the sound that is heard about him is that he is the pure, spotless Lamb of God, more than enough, more than capable to, to save and to provide and to, and to take care of his sons and daughters. He wanted to make sure that people were not getting a mixed message about him. And we see Jesus saying to the church, what is he saying? In your notes, recognize and repent of your mixed religion. You know, I can't tell you how many years I've sat in church and, and as I sit week after week, I need to just continually repent, not to be saved, but so that my mind would be changed so that I would think, feel, dream, and desire like Jesus. You know, there was a lot of years where I didn't consider repentance as something that I needed to do every day. I think this is maybe one of the reasons why people come to church week after week and don't repent and remain the same. We won't repent for something that we don't recognize. And that's why the love of the Father comes and he shines things in our minds and in our hearts so that we would recognize them and offer them up as a burnt offering so that he could burn them out of our life and we can repent and he can change us. And by the way, he's really good at changing us and transforming us. And I have a word for somebody today. Some of you feel like you've lost control. You've lost control of your mind. You've lost control of your emotions. But I'm telling you today that through repentance and the transforming work of God in your soul, your mind, will, and your emotions, God is in the business of giving people their sanity back. God is in the business of giving people their mind back, all for his glory. Jesus wanted the church in Pergamum to change the way they thought about mixture and he wants us to change the way we think about mixture and adding to the gospel. 
I love something really interesting I notice in here. I love that Jesus never tells the church of Pergamum to move out of the city where Satan has his throne, no? In fact, we don't even see Jesus wasting his time rebuking the enemy in this city. And he was all around the city the enemy was. It was his throne, the Bible says. It was his home. Jesus wasn't shouting at the enemy, nor was he telling his faithful ones to do the same. Why? Because Jesus is already victorious over the enemy. The enemy is already defeated. And I think that it's important and about time for the church to realize that we serve a king of kings who actually has already defeated the enemy. We don't need to waste our time rebuking, running, or fleeing, but we need to spend our time seeking, pressing, letting the Lord transform us, and living and establishing the kingdom on this earth because the gates of hell can't stand against the kingdom of God. Put a little fire emoji in there because if you were in-house, I could feel an amen right now. When you live under the dominion of the King of kings and Lord of lords, you are part of the body of Christ. You have already won. The final thing I notice in this scripture is his assurance of the abundant life. This is really fun, the assurance of his abundant life. Revelations 2 and 17 says, whoever has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious, I will give some hidden manna, and I will also give that person a white stone with a name written on it. Well, what exactly are the assurances we see here of the abundant life? And who gets the assurance of the abundant life? Well, here's the first thing I see is I see the assurance of provision. Who gets this provision? Scripture says the one who is victorious. Remember, he's talking to his faithful ones. How do you know if you're victorious? How did the church of Pergamum know that they were victorious? There's only one way to know that you're victorious, and it's simply by this, to enter into the victorious life through the victorious one, Jesus Christ, and finish out your life, keeping your faith in your salvation for your life and your redemption and your healing in the victorious one. So as we put our faith in Jesus for our life and keep it there until the end, that's how you know if you are a victorious one. And if you've done that, you are a victorious one. What does he provide for the one who is victorious says, I'll give you some hidden manna. Is Jesus like playing hokey pokey? Is Jesus, is Jesus like the Easter bunny where he's, he's hiding these eggs all around? No, no, no. That's, that's not what it is about at all. Hidden manna, as we read, when we take a look at scriptures, manna was bread provided to the Israelites in the wilderness when there was no food for them to eat. I'm sure that many of you are familiar with the stories of Moses just like they were as they heard about them. The scriptures were taught to the church regarding these type of things. And it's important to understand and know for this church and for you and I that every story in the Old Testament, every story that was ever told was a shadow of something new to come. And here is Jesus still trying to get the church of Pergamum to understand this reality. And I think that it's important still today for the church to understand these realities. Years before Jesus gave this letter to be written to this church, in Matthew 6, 35, Jesus comes and tells the people what the manna was all about in the wilderness. 
And he says this, I want you to know that the manna, it's not about physical food. It's not about feeding your physical body in the wilderness. I'm telling you about, it's about a spiritual food. It's about spiritual bread. And in fact, I want you to know that I am the bread. I am the one who will keep you alive. I am the pure lamb of God. And when you eat from me, you will never be hungry again. You will never be thirsty again. You will never need to go out to another temple to sacrifice to a God who will give you a blessing because I have all the blessings that you need right here and right now. Jesus says, I am the promise of the manna. I am the, the gift for the victorious one. Are you a victor? Then you've been given manna from heaven. This is the hidden manna that can only be found in the life of Christ. And as long as we're going out treating the lamb of God like an appetizer, we will never find the hidden manna that's found in the plate sitting right in front of us called the gospel of Jesus. And he says to you and I, when you eat from my plate that I have prepared for you, you will never be hungry again. What is the other assurance that we see? We see the last assurance here. It's the assurance of blessing. He says, I'm going to give them a white stone with a new name. So white stones were given to people for a lot of different things, but here's a couple reasons why white stones were given away. So when Jesus says, I'm gonna give you a white stone, it made sense to this, this cultural context. There, there were white stones that were given away called tessery during this time. A tessery signified a couple things. If you received one of these white stones, a tessery, it was most likely because you were a victor in public games or because it marked a special friendship or a, a new allegiance that was created. This meant a special entitlement to you with this group or party that you have a new allegiance with. And also because of that stone, you were able to be fed by the public or fed by or taken care of by friends. Having a white stone was like a, 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 a signified honor if you had a white stone. And I can't imagine anything more than this white stone being a natural picture of something really spiritual. We are promised something spiritual and in Christ. And when we enter into his life, we don't just get a stone, but we get a rock that we get to stand on. And his name is Jesus. He is the promise of the promised land. He's not a place, but he's a person. And his name is Jesus. He is the manna of the promised land, the precious lamb of God. And his honor has become your honor in the sight of God. It is an honor to have a white stone. And Jesus says, to my victors, I'm gonna give you the blessing of having my white stone. Names would often be inscribed on these white stones to signify who they belong to. Uh, and, and it was an honor to have your name written on one of these stones. It was also very common in Bible times that when somebody had a, a major conversion point that they would be given a new name. And in fact, we see God giving people new names all throughout the Bible. I can only imagine that when, when God gives the victor a stone, you and I a stone, that not only does he give us a, a pure white stone to stand on that's a sure stone, that's a sure foundation, but he gives us a stone and he rewrites a name on it. And he rewrites victory on your stone your old name was slave and as a slave you had an inheritance in adam and that inheritance was death by the way these stones were also passed down as inheritance but in christ we get a white stone 
and we get a new name written on it. And that new name is son. That new name is daughter. And you have received an inheritance with this stone called the abundant life in Christ. I think Jesus wants to transform the church and those in the church to realize how blessed we already are in Christ as his victorious ones. It was so clear in this story that all the blessings of heaven were at the disposal of this church. They just did not know it. They were too busy going out and finding blessings on their own that would fit their timing and their way and their ideas. And Jesus says, I have blessings for you. They're not your ways, but they're my ways. They're not your time, but they're my times. I want you to slow down. I want you to rest in me and I'm gonna come and bring you a stone and I will provide you everything you need. Ephesians 1, 3 says, praise be to God, our Father, who has blessed us with every blessing in the heavenly realms, every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now, I'm not great at grammar. You could ask our staff. They have to fix myself all the time. And you also probably know that if I have texted you before. But when I read this word, who has been blessed, I'm smart enough to know that this word has is a past tense word. That as soon as you enter into the life of Christ as the victorious one, all of the blessings ever required to sustain your life for godliness and everything you need for the kingdom are at your disposal. If you're victorious with a white stone in your hand, I want you to know that there's no more begging for tomorrow's blessings for you because you have entered as a victorious one into the blessed life. Your blessing is here and now. And if the name Jesus is the name that you profess as your Lord and Savior and you are eating from the plate of the Lamb of God, I want you to remind you that he owns all things, that he will never lack in blessing you. He will never lack in providing for you. In fact, he never runs out of anything. He's the creator and sustainer of all things. And I think that it's time for the church to repent of a mixture mindset saying that I need to still sacrifice like these people of the city did to all of these temple gods and temple worships to get their God to bless them and realize that we are blessed in Christ. The temple life is a life of constant begging, constant sacrifices, and it never ends. Jesus says, I assure you, victorious one, no more begging required. You are a son in my house, I'll always have enough lamb for you to eat. Our takeaway today is this. Jesus plus nothing is how you live the abundant life in Christ.